This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hi, I'm Lauren Martin here with Dr. Claire Higgins, an historian and senior research fellow at the Caldor Centre. Dr. Higgins has just published a new policy brief about how countries like Australia can better protect refugees. Claire, what's the idea behind this research? Thanks, Lauren. Asylum seekers and refugees can face difficult journeys when they're trying to access protection under international refugee and human rights law. Their ability to exercise the right to seek asylum, which we all have, may be impeded by visa restrictions and other border controls. And so this leads, as we've seen in Australia and many other countries recently, to dangerous boat journeys or Mm. land crossings. The idea behind my research is to question how countries like Australia can allow asylum seekers and refugees to travel safely across international borders. And the term for the particular mechanism that I'm writing about is protected entry. Hmm. So this policy brief examines how different countries like Brazil, Italy, the United States have operated these protected entry procedures to provide visas for asylum seekers. Can you talk us through some of the examples of how these pathways might work? I can, and some of them work right now to respond to uh, the forced migration of Syrians and Iraqis, which has been at record levels, as we've seen um, very prominently in recent years. You mentioned Brazil. Brazil uh, instituted in 2013 a special visa for Syrians who would be in countries neighbouring Syria, they'd fled their country, and they could go to an embassy of Brazil and apply effectively in the same way as they would apply for a tourist visa for a special humanitarian visa that then allows them to board a plane and land in Brazil and then safely claim asylum. Mm -hmm. In Italy, uh, Italy has a similar kind of mechanism that's run uh, out of Lebanon for Syrians and for Iraqis, and it's been expanded um, to Ethiopia for Eritreans and to a number of other countries. And that uh, mechanism is called Humanitarian Corridors, and it's run by faith-based organisations in partnership and cooperation with the Italian government, which um, said to these faith-based organisations, you can have this many visas and we'll do the security checks, and you go and interview people and allow them to get on a plane and come to Italy and claim asylum. And then once people arrive, they fly into Rome, they're greeted by uh, welcome banners, by members of the Italian government, by representatives of these faith-based organisations, and then they're supported in communities around Italy for the first year of their arrival to learn Italian, to integrate their children into schools, to find jobs, and while their uh, claim for protection is being processed. And that, um, the humanitarian corridors, has now been replicated in France and Belgium and Andorra. So to a lesser extent in those countries, but it's growing. So a pretty innovative program. A very innovative program. And actually, the uh, UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, awarded uh, the Italian humanitarian corridors the Regional Nansen Award for 2019, which is a very prestigious award that recognises uh, countries or uh, individuals or organisations who go out of their way to help displaced people. Hmm. 
And and has Australia ever tried this or anything like this? It has. And actually, that's why I came to this uh, research project in the first place. As you mentioned at the start, I'm an historian. And when I was researching how Australia established its refugee resettlement program back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, I came across this very special procedure in which Australian migration officials would be posted in countries like El Salvador or Chile, and they would help dissidents and former political prisoners to get out of those countries under Australia's special humanitarian program. And they did incredibly brave things in helping people to escape. And it was a very quiet, very discreet program. And the migration officials were risking their own safety to help people. And Australia made a real difference to people fleeing authoritarian regimes at that time. Nowadays, Australia has uh, a very similar mechanism in place, but operates um, on a on a lesser scale. It, it's it's called the two hundred one subclass two hundred one visa, mm. and Australia um, has most recently, in the past year, accepted around one thousand Yazidis from Iraq through that particular in-country program. So people moving from their own countries and settling in Australia. Wow. So has protected entry ever operated on a large scale? You said a thousand people in in this case. Has it ever been bigger? Yeah, Yeah. it has. And the orderly departure program out of Vietnam is the best example of this. It was set up in response to the more than one and a half million people who fled Vietnam after the end of the United States war in that country in 1975. And the international community got together and led by the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and with uh, leadership from the United States in particular. Uh, Countries like Australia jumped on board and um, signed agreements with the Vietnamese government at that time to help people get out of that country and settle safely abroad rather than having to get on boats and flee and potentially risk their lives in doing so. And about 500,000 people travelled through that program safely to new lives in the United States as refugees or through family reunion programs and many thousands of others went to France or to Australia under those countries' migration programs. So it's a real standout example of this form of processing. Yes, and, and we're having this conversation now at a point of time when the international community is trying to deal with and address record levels of forced migration. Right now, uh, I think the numbers are up to more than 70 million people who are displaced from their homes. And what I find is often overlooked in everyday conversations or in the media coverage about this big number is that not all those 70 million people will ever need to move out of their regions, uh, out of their, you know, the general areas where, where their lives were to receive protection and solutions in a country like Australia. That's right, Lauren. For example, so UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, has identified a very small number of that 70 million, a very small number of refugees, only 1.4 million in 2020, who need Mm. resettlement in a third country like Australia or in Canada or the United States. So that's a 1.4 million total. And so if countries like Australia and others got together and, and just made a small increase in their resettlement intakes, that could make a big difference to that number. 
we don't need to be scared off by the big 70 million. No, we do not. Not everyone wants to come live in our neighborhood. No, they don't. <laughs> so how could uh, a state, or in, in UN speak, a state, a country mm-hmm. like Australia make a difference? So by opening and expanding protected entry procedures, so these visa Uh, opportunities that you and I have been discussing as one way of creating a complementary pathway to existing resettlement programs. So we've mentioned um, Australia's resettlement program that was set up in response to the Vietnamese who fled their country in the late 1970s. Australia has a very sophisticated, well-developed, successful resettlement program. Let's keep that and make it even bigger if we can. But what I'm talking about is creating these extra complementary pathways through which asylum seekers and refugees can get a visa and arrive on their own terms. And it can be opened for designated groups or more generally, there are many different examples as Brazil and Italy show us of how these kind of procedures can operate. And how would opening these kind of pathways for some refugees help address that global challenge of displacement? That's a really good question. And the answer is that when uh, a country resettles one refugee, that has flow-on effects for others who might remain behind in host countries, in refugee camps or locally integrating in a, in a neighbouring country to their, to their own country of origin. It eases conditions on the ground for those countries that are hosting thousands or millions of refugees. Mm. It makes it easier for them to keep their borders open. It makes the whole system work much more smoothly because it shares responsibility among different countries for helping to find solutions for refugees. That's so interesting. And and is protected entry something under discussion right now at the international level? It is, Lauren. The, the, in 2016, um, the UN General Assembly uh, resolved unanimously to help expand pathways such as these um, to help refugees avoid taking dangerous journeys. And then last year, uh, that message was reinforced in a new global agreement called the Global Compact on refugees and Australia is one of 181 states that um, have made commitments under the Global Compact Mm -hmm. and this December um, those states will all be getting together, Australia included, with uh, civil society organisations led by the UNHCR to um, consolidate their pledges and commitments under the Global Compact and so it's an ongoing conversation and these kind of pathways that we've been discussing are very much part of that. can you just remind us again why they're called complementary pathways? Because they're supposed to be complementary to a person's right to access um, protection and apply for asylum under international refugee and human rights law. That very problem that we um, discussed at the beginning, that, that uh, the ability to exercise that right can be impeded by visa restrictions and border controls. So these complementary pathways have to be complementary to keeping that um, ability to seek asylum open and complementary to existing resettlement programs that Australia has um, had in place for so long and so successfully. And if these kind of um, initiatives are under discussion at um, the Global Refugee Forum in December this year, that's 2019, what are the essential considerations if they are to provide a safe alternative? 
So as we've said, they have to be complementary. They also have to be additional too. So Australia has an annual quota for its refugee resettlement program and we would want these pathways to be additional to that. It cannot eat into that quota, it has to be sitting alongside it and that's um, demonstrated in the historical examples in our policy brief that that's the best way to proceed. And also uh, these programs should be operated on a, on a multi-year commitment because that allows um, countries and, and local governments to plan for settling and welcoming refugees. It allows uh, the refugees who are applying for these visas to know what to expect and to know that that pathway will remain open. It means that NGOs and other stakeholders can better plan their involvement in assisting with these procedures. And it, it basically provides a lot more predictability for other countries in knowing how the, the responsibility for finding solutions for refugees can be shared over um, a period of time. And if these pathways are to provide a safe alternative to dangerous journeys, they also need to have transparent and flexible criteria and procedures so that the asylum seekers and refugees who are considering submitting an application for this kind of visa can make a fully informed decision about what's best for them and their families and their future. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Dr. Claire Higgins, uh, her new policy brief is called Safe Journeys and Sound Policy, Expanding Protected Entry for Refugees. And you can find it on the Caldor Centre website. That's caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you.